0: Gracious God, you've promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire, and it will succeed in the matter for which you have sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. There was a little girl who had two apples, one in each hand. And her mother, observing her, thought that she would put her daughter to the test. And she said, honey, will you give me one of your apples? And the little girl took a bite out of one, And then she took a bite out of the other. And the mother was disappointed. She thought, my daughter is being selfish. And then the little girl held out her hand and one of the apples and said, Here, Mom, this is the sweetest. Now, we make assumptions... Quite often, in the absence of evidence, we fill in the gaps in our knowledge. We begin to assume things that are not true. And Roman numeral number one in your outline, on the back of your bulletin, often what we assume is not reality. What we assume is not reality. It's not based on evidence. What we assume is based on the lack of evidence. It's just an assumption. Point A, an assumption is an opinion with the illusion of certainty. It's the illusion of certainty. You you haven't gone to the other person to ask them. You haven't sought them out. You haven't engaged them in any way. What's going on between your two ears is simply... Your imagination. Number one, point A1. In the ancient world, status and honor were determined by one's birth, by one's birth or family of origin. And we see that in our gospel reading for this morning. Verse 1, he went away from there and came to his hometown. Now, the hometown's not named, but it's probably Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. So there's he's, he's got a following, a hometown boy coming back. Men are following him. That's rather impressive. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. So that's a nice gesture on the part of uh, the hometown folk. They're inviting Jesus to say something. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man, the emphasis is on the this, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? In other words, they're looking at his family of origin, and they're drawing conclusions. That's what people did. Society was very stratified. And you didn't rise above your family of origin. That was assuming too much if you did. I was trying to think of an illustration, and I, I remember my high school days back in the late 60s, early 70s. And I don't know what high school was like for you, but uh, my high school was very socially stratified, okay? Very clearly delineated groups of people. Um, You know, at at the very top were the best athletes, okay? They were the top of the pyramid. And maybe right under them were the cheerleaders, and then below them, you had the so-so athletes, and the really smart people, okay? I mean, really smart people. And, and the really smart people would only date other really smart people, okay? And the really good athletes would date only the cheerleaders. And then below all that, you had the college prep crowd. I was part of the college prep crowd. It was not outstanding in any way. I just headed toward college. But below that group, you had the general studies crowd. And that was general classes. You weren't going to college. I don't know what you are going to do after that. But, and then at the very bottom, you had the special needs kids. And they were just starting to be mainstream when I was in high school, and they were treated brutally. I mean, it was really tough, um, really hard for them. They were mocked, ridiculed. Beaten up. But that's the way it was. A very stratified, I remember that. I, 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 just observing it sociologically, I thought it really interesting. And I remember my sister telling me, before I went into high school, she said, John, if you're going to change your image, you need to do it right now. Because once you're established in high school, once you're in a certain group, that's it. That's where you remain. You don't go up. You know, I mean... I could never date a cheerleader. Not that I would want to. (laughs) But I just couldn't. I mean, I would have been laughed out of the school. That just wouldn't happen. See, that's foolish. And so, something similar is going on in Nazareth. Where this guy, Jesus, he's a carpenter. See, he's the son of a carpenter. To get up and to say such powerful things, to do such mighty works that we've heard about, this is not who he is, you see. In the ancient world, status and honor were determined by one's birth or family of origin. There's an interesting story recorded by Eusebius, an early church historian, and one of Jesus's brothers, half-brothers. Oh, n- notice also he's notice he's the son of Mary in verse 3. You see that suggests there's something about his birth that's not legitimate. He's not called the son of Joseph. People know there's something that's not quite normal about this guy. So that's maybe called into question too. Right? But anyway, Eusebius records a story about two sons of Jude, or Judas. Now, this is one of the brothers of Jesus listed in your Gospel reading. And toward the end of the first century, the emperor Domitian, he was a persecutor of the church. He wanted to learn more about Jesus. And so he sent for these two sons of Judas to come to Rome. He brought them to Rome. They were prisoners. And he wanted to interview them, and he did. And he asked them, he said, tell me about the one you worship, and tell me about his kingdom. And these two men, they were nephews of Jesus. They said, well, his kingdom is not of this world. And he died, and he rose again on the third day. He ascended to heaven, and he's returning to judge all humanity. And the Emperor Domitian said, show me your hands. He examined these men's hands, and they were rough, and they were calloused. He said, get out of here. Basically, he said, you're not worth my time. I don't need to listen to you. What do you know? See, that gives you an idea of what it was like if you were a part of Jesus' social class. You weren't taken seriously when it came to leadership. That's the way it was. You see that in Acts chapter 4. The disciples are hauled before the Jewish ruling council, and they're interviewed. And they're astonished because these are uneducated men, and they're speaking boldly and confidently and fluently. Well, they're really not uneducated at all. Uh, They were taught by Jesus for three years. But according to the standard educational system, they were uneducated. So they weren't to be taken seriously. Point B. Don't let your assumptions become obstacles to the truth. You know, we we make assumptions because we're not talking to the other person. We're not dealing with facts. We're dealing with assumptions. Point B1, assumptions have consequences. Verses 5 and 6, and he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Assumptions lead to unbelief. Jesus will not reward unbelief. He did not come as a miracle worker. He came to die. It must have been a a very strong temptation. It would have been a strong temptation for me to do some mighty work and to put those people in their place. To prove to them that he was who he was. That same temptation was placed before him uh, in Matthew chapter 4 when the devil took him to the pinnacle of the temple and said, throw yourself down from here because the angels will rescue you. You know that. Everybody will see it. Demonstrate your power. And Jesus wouldn't do it. The same temptation was set before him when he was on the cross and those who mocked him said, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Prove to us who you are. You see, to demonstrate his power would be to avoid the cross. Would be to avoid the very reason for his coming. When he does the mighty works, he keeps it secret. He tells people, "Don't, don't tell anybody about this. See, I don't want people to get the wrong idea about why I came. I came to die. I came to be weak, to suffer, to be crucified, and then to rise in glory. The temptation is to put the cart before the horse. Point two, assumptions say more about you than about others. When we assume we're just projecting our own ideas onto other people. And we do the same thing with God. We project our own ideas about God onto God. And your assumptions will lead you away from God. We assume that God is like us. That he thinks like us. That our agenda would be his agenda. Our values ought to be his values. That's the way we imagine God to be. And that's why Mark Twain, a hundred years ago, said... God made man in his image, and we've been returning the compliment ever since. That's how it goes. And that's why, Roman numeral two, Jesus destroys our assumptions. He overturns our assumptions. He must, if we are to understand who God is, and if we're to understand one another, Point A, things are not as they seem. You know it's like that in the kingdom of God. When we talk about spiritual reality, things are not as they seem. Common sense would tell you, well, if if God's coming into the world, he's going to attract all the very best and brightest to himself. Right? When we want people to emigrate to our country, we want the best and we want the brightest. And we imagine God will operate the same way. But the reality is, point number one, Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those who know their need. Those who've heard the law. Who get it. Common sense would tell you that those who save their lives, those who survive for the next day, those who survived a fight, those are the winners. Point number two, Jesus said, whoever loses his life will save it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it for eternity. Common sense tells us, well, the first, they'll be first. <laughs> and the last, they'll be last. <laughs> I remember in high school gym class... Uh, Our instructor was a former drill instructor, and uh, the very first thing we'd have to do every gym class was run a lap, a quarter mile, and he would say, never be last, gentlemen, never be last. You know, (laughs) if if you were last, you had to do push-ups, had to do extra work, you see. We struggled never to be last. Common sense says, you know, it's when I'm strong and when I'm vigorous, then I can be of service to God. Then I can do God's will. Point number four, St. Paul wrote, when I am weak, then I'm strong to do God's will. When I'm flat on my back, that's when I'm actually, ironically, most useful to God in my weakness. You know, common sense says, when we accept Jesus, then he accepts us. That's not scripture. Point five, humanity's rejection of Christ is God's acceptance of humanity. Our rejection of Christ leads to our acceptance by God. He dies in our place. Our sin becomes his. His righteousness becomes ours. Isaiah 53 puts it this way. He was despised and rejected by men, and yet the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. We reject. He accepts. That's unconditional love. That kind of love isn't found on earth. It's it's revealed from heaven. It's revealed from heaven. And point B, Christ calls us not to assume, but to engage others, to speak with others, to not avoid others, but to engage them. God does not make assumptions about you and me, He doesn't assume you're a certain way. He knows. How does He know? You know, I like the example in Genesis 18, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and God comes down, and he's dialoguing, he's talking to Abraham, okay? And he says this to Abraham. He says, I have come down, this is with regard to Sodom and Gomorrah, I have come down to see if they are doing according to the cry that has come up to me. And if not, I will know. He doesn't just assume about Sodom and Gomorrah. He engages them. He sees, he knows. You see this again and again in Scripture. He sees, he knows the predicament of his people in Egypt and so on. And our Lord, ultimately, finally, does not assume what it's like to be you and me. He does not assume what it's like to be human. He doesn't assume what it's like to be weak. What it's like to be rejected. What it's like to suffer and die. He doesn't assume that. He becomes one of us. And he knows what it's like. To walk in your shoes and in mine. And he deals mercifully. Christ deals mercifully with us. Because not only has he engaged us. But he's become one of us. And he remains One of us. For all eternity. He bears the scars. He inhabits flesh. Jesus never assumes. He knows. And he knows you. And he calls you to know your neighbor. And to never assume. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.